Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In January of 2021, shares of the company GameStop saw a meteoric rise of over 800%. Yet, with prices spiking, a number of influential platforms froze trading and restricted the ability of their investors to buy the stock. In doing so, did they break their legal obligations to those investors? And with billions being won and lost, today we'll take a look at the potential for legal liability, both civil and criminal, in the frenzy on GameStop. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law, I'm Joel Cohen. Today, to get the practitioner's view on the topic, we're joined remotely by Farah Guberman and Ken Breen. Ken, Farah, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks so much for having us, Joel. Yes, thanks, Joel. Happy to be here. Well, we've got a lot to cover, but I suppose with two seasoned litigators on the line, maybe we need to start with some good foundation. Farah, maybe without going too much into the weeds, what was unique or different with what happened with GameStop? Well, I actually think uh, GameStop brought together what, we th- what we've described as the perfect storm in the market. You have all of these new lay people trading because of platforms like Robinhood. You have a ton of people working remotely and trading. So they're trading from home and have more time to do that. You have people using platforms like Reddit to communicate about ch- chats. And I think it brought a lot of uh, momentum in an already volatile market uh, that brought the discussions about GameStop uh, to the forefront and generated an 800% increase in the stock. Well, why don't we turn to Robinhood? Robinhood, probably one of the big losers in this saga, at least in terms of bad press. But today we're talking about something different. We're talking about their legal liabilities. What's going on there? And what are some of the allegations against Robinhood? Well, I think what you're seeing is that Robinhood's being challenged for uh, taking steps to uh, to disable the ability to to buy shares, you know, during a time when there was a, a huge surge of of both buying of shares as well as buying of calls, and as I understand it, they 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 did permit some selling, uh, but not buying. So they came into the spotlight mostly because they have these relationships where, where they sell their order flow to uh, to different companies, you know, who, who pay them for that. And I, I think that there was some concern that, that there'd been uh, some kind of coordination be- between uh, the institutions buying the order flow and Robinhood in making its decision to halt some amount of buying. Ken, when you're talking about order flow, is that, you know, they're letting some other funds know what's bought and sold at the end of the day without, you know, specific details as to who? Well, what they're doing is, is uh, the institutions that buy order flow have relationships with lots of different buyers and sellers through, you know, through their clients, and, and they, they match the, the buys with the sells. And, and they're able to do that and, and to, to profit on you know, the, the difference between uh, the prices, the, the bid and the ask. So um, you know, that, that's a profitable business for a company that does that kind of thing if they, they can do it in volume. But they wouldn't be sharing the, the information on, on orders 
you know, with, with anybody who, who'd be looking to try to benefit from that or try to arbitrage it. It would just be execution. And that's how a lot of these platforms uh, are able to, to provide uh, trading to retail buyers and sellers you know, w without charging them, them the cost of those trades. Robinhood is a very broad uh, user agreement that allows them to restrict trading and any platform would. It's very common and it's not without precedent that temporary trading, you know, that trading temporarily be restricted. It's something that we've seen before and it could happen in this case, it happened during a very volatile trading period. But it, I mean, it's also happened because there are technical issues or, uh, you, you know, you never know what the reason is that why they're halting trading. In this case, they did seem to have le a legitimate purpose, you know, regulatory capital requirements, clearinghouse requirements that gave them a reason to um, to suspend trading when the SEC elected not to halt trading. So is it intent, Farah? Are we talking about is the difference between uh, restriction and manipulation the intent? I would think so. I mean, to me, if there's a legitimate purpose for them to restrict trading and they're permitted to under their user agreement, there's not much of a case there. And, and from what I understand, uh, if, if they hadn't done those restrictions, that, that they would have been shut down it, it, and all of those those trades would, would have been you know either canceled or, or they would have been reversed. So it, it, that wouldn't have been a good situation for, for Robinhood or, or for its, its customers. Is that because of capital restrictions or, or constraints? It is. The capital constraints increase with, with the number of, of long positions that they hold. Uh, it's, it's not the same thing with, with sales. So the idea that, that there'd be a distinction between uh, buys and, and, and sells is, is something that, that's rooted in, in their, their, their capital restrictions. They were uh, apparently, from the news sources, asked to put about $3 billion in to, to, you know, as collateral for, for, for some of, of the risk that Robinhood was taking, you know, because of the way that that sales and, and, and buys clear. And they were hours away from, from not being able to do that and were able to, to talk that number down to about $1.4 billion, you know, which is sufficient for them to stay in business and, and continue to operate. And I'd also note that Ken Griffin's testimony uh, in February, uh, 2021, uh, after these events, uh, he was very clear in, in, in stating that there were no communications between Citadel and, and Robinhood with regard to Robinhood's decision to restrict the buying. That concern that, that many people had that there had been some coordination between the buyer of the order flow and the, and the, and the seller of, of the overflow seems to, to be settled at this point. And Ken, there's also this this third player, Melvin Capital, who was, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the big uh, shorters of, of GameStop, who then got money from Citadel. Was this also part of the allegations of malfeasance? Right. So that's one reason that that people were speculating that, that Citadel would have, have the the desire to interfere with the buying of, of shares and, and buying of calls in, in GameStop. It, it was because, you know, as the, the short squeeze was happening, uh, as I understand it, Melvin Capital was, was one of the largest shorters and came under extreme pressure. And in connection with, with that, you know, closed out positions, lost a lot of money and needed a capital infusion. And, and I, there were a couple of companies that, that provided the capital 
infusion and, and, and actually bought into ownership, equity ownership of, of, of Melvin. And, and one of them was Citadel. Ken, you're a, a former federal prosecutor. We're going to be talking or we have been talking about market manipulation, but what exactly is the test for that? So for securities fraud, there's there's basically two main ways that that securities fraud can can happen. The the element of of, of falsity with regard to false statements or or misleading omissions in, in the context of other statements that are made. Uh, that, that's one of the two prongs. The second one uh, deals with which is a much more uh, litigated and, and and up in the air area of law. It would be conduct without false statements that is in itself deceptive. And that's really one of the things, the, the two prongs where there could be some investigations here on whether there were false statements by some of the people on, on, on Wall Street bets, you know, maybe misrepresented themselves, misrepresented their positions, uh, what they were doing. They, they said, you know, let's all buy and hold when they were selling, um, or if somebody uh, misrepresented their credentials in, in terms of you know presenting themselves as, as being a, a mom and pop shop, a small trader when they were involved with hedge funds or, or you know institution or, or something like that, or, or their training and, and experience, you know those kinds of things would, would be what somebody would probe to, to try to figure out if, if they were you know trying to deceive and make false statements or, or omit in a misleading way, and the other you know one in terms of, of conduct itself that. You know, is deceptive, which doesn't need uh, false statements, is something that's you know, been around as a concept and has been heavily litigated for, for years. Ken, what was that specific case? Well, what was the case name? Uh, the name was U.S. v. El Jindi. And, and the Second Circuit court case that, that happened after that, the appeal, was called U.S. v. Reuter, which is still good law in the Second Circuit, which involved a group of, of, of chat room traders who were short sellers and, and would release information uh, that was negative information in, in concert with heavy short selling in, in order to uh, manipulate the, the price down so that they could cover their short positions at, at a at an artificially manipulated low cost. The Second Circuit was asked to consider whether to overturn the, those convictions uh, based on a jury instruction that didn't clearly delineate whether false statements were required or whether it could be false statements or it could be a conduct which, which was in itself deceptive. And, and uh, the, the court ruled that that was a, a proper instruction. That continues to be the law in the Second Circuit, although uh, it takes a prosecutor with a strong stomach to, to decide to move forward on that theory. Farah, let's talk about the lawsuits. There was pretty quick action uh, with, the, with the number of plaintiffs to sue Robinhood, what were the allegations that were brought in those lawsuits? Yes, there are a series of class action suits that were filed almost immediately. First, alleging breach of contract, meaning that because Robinhood wasn't fulfilling trades, that they were breaching their contract to their users. Um, and then there were also claims related to restrictions on buying, where people were suing, saying that they were prevented from the ability to make money because they couldn't buy from Robinhood. And we saw already uh, in February of, of 2021, a judge in California denied the temporary restraining order that plaintiffs were seeking, uh, whereby they were asking that Robinhood not be allowed to restrict trading. And the judge quickly 
denied that request because there really isn't any precedent or any reason why they would say that Robinhood cannot restrict trading if there's a legitimate purpose to doing that, uh, particularly where you have a broad user agreement that allows Robinhood to restrict trading at any time. And as Ken had discussed, it, there were legitimate reasons for the trading restrictions, including capital requirements and clearinghouse deposits. So they were certainly within their range. And to restrict buying is so is really very difficult to tie into an actual loss. The fact that you were prevented from buying something, the idea that that could lead to a, a direct loss that would hold up as a securities claim doesn't have a lot of weight to it. Interesting. So is this an example of the those dense user agreements that many people don't read actually having some legal import? I think any time you have to sign an agreement, it has import. And I think that this is certainly a key term in terms of what your uh, your trading platform, the fact that it can restrict your trading at any time for any reason is a key term. The idea that you cannot buy or sell on this particular platform first, there was no reason why they couldn't buy or sell on a different platform even while there were restrictions on Robinhood. So theoretically, they weren't prevented from trading. They just were prevented from trading on Robinhood for a fixed period of time while Robinhood was dealing with its capital requirements. And second, there are there is there have been a lot of other lawsuits about things like this on trading platforms and even against NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange when trading's been suspended for periods of time. And it, it's just this is not an issue without precedent. It's general a case like this, I think, is pretty weak. And that's what the California judge's de- denial of the temporary restraining order is previewing. Is it just a matter of not having the evidence to back up these these claims? Well, it's not a breach of contract if the contract is the user agreement and the user agreement clearly sets forth that the trading platform was within its rights to suspend trading. Uh, here you have a legitimate reason why they suspended trading. So there wasn't some nefarious purpose from everything that we know. Unless they can show some intentional fraud, there's really not a case and there's no evidence of that. Right. And just to add the the idea that there was some conspiracy between Citadel and, and Robinhood, you know, has been debunked by Ken Griffin. I mean, but that would be a scenario where, you know, where there probably would be some liability, but you know, he's in very specific and, and, and forward terms as, has denied that there was any of that. And the follow-up question is, if we ask every employee at Citadel, will, will they give the same answer? And he said, yes. Well, I'm sure there will be discovery about that. The February 2021 Senate hearings or congressional hearings made clear that there's not a lot there. I think Ken Griffin was very convincing and, and emphatic in his statement. Well, let's talk about some of the claims that were being made in the lawsuits. I imagine the the case for having lost money on potentially earning money would be a challenging one. How would that work? Well, you, there'd have to be some some kind of evidence, I guess, if you're trying to demonstrate that loss that, that you had. You had a plan in place and that, that you were you, you were trying to buy more more shares at the time that that that, that you were restricted in doing that. Be very speculative, you know. That, that'd be a, a very difficult scenario, I, I think, to advance. I mean, the the you know, just in terms of, of losses, putting aside you know the other viability concerns, it, somebody being restricted in selling, it, it would be a, a much easier situation. And, and I don't believe that there were restrictions in selling. The only the other side of it, though, the restrictions on buying do affect 
the ability to sell. I mean, the fact that you have fewer buyers or people who can't buy means it's going to affect the price. But I think there's so much volatility in the market at this time that it would be very difficult to show a direct causation between the Robinhood restrictions and any loss or loss of, especially a loss of expected profit. The market for GameStop was in complete upheaval at this point in time. The, uh, you know, just going into the trade in, in, in January, you know, I think the short interest in, in GameStop was a 140% of, of the float, which is just insane. I mean, it's, there used to be, you know, some limitations in, in shorting where you'd have to borrow the shares and, you know, just the way things clear, you know, with a delay in, in, in having to, to have them deposited and, and the synthetic shorts that, you know, in a, a crazy leveraged way re- result from, from buying call options. You know, just just create a, a it just it overwhelmed Robinhood. It overwhelmed the, the system, and, and you know, Farah's right when she says that that you know when when you know buying became res- restricted. I mean, the short interest just just was able to 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 push the the price down because that's just how it works. It's supply and demand. Or you take away, you know, you have two equal forces and they're they're fighting over a uh, resistance point, and and then you you take away the, the resistance. You know, that's what happens. Well, let's talk about Wall Street bets. This was the Reddit, uh, subreddit that was partly responsible for the interest in GameStop. What was going on there, Farah? Well, you had a group of people who were talking about a stock. They were promoting it. Um, They were talking about their intent to buy it, their intent to hold it, their view that it's undervalued. They were sharing market color. They were sharing their market views. And initially, it was thought of that they were all, you know, lay people, just amateur traders, uh, people at home in their basements. You know, you think about Robinhood, and I think I heard in the congressional hearings uh, that the average Robinhood account is two hundred and fifty dollars, and the median is like something like five thousand dollars. It's just uh, so there are people sharing information about the Robinhood trading, and I think it was all thought of as very um, amateur. Uh, small trading. And we're talking about law. So uh, is anything in that in and of itself illegal? It's it's fine, right, to go out and share stock tips that you think may help others? I mean, there are entire cable channels dedicated to sharing stock tips. I mean, look at what CNBC does. There's nothing inherently wrong with sharing tips that are based on your views that, you know, your honestly held views and promoting it. The questions come in based on what, as Ken's discussed, uh, whether there was any deceit. But if they were just sharing information based on market views and their opinions and nothing was caged, nothing was said as an objective fact. I mean, I didn't see anybody saying, well, I was on the phone with the CEO of GameStop and he told me this is their plan. Without something like that, I think it would be very difficult to show intentional falsity. And I I think you also have a question of whether anybody thought that somebody else's communications on a Reddit platform would ever rise to the level of materiality necessary for for charges, for some kind of a market manipulation charge. The the language in the Algindi Royer case, and that was a very different type of scenario of of group orchestrated trading, but the language there was was, was whether the, the market gets moved by this orchestrated you know, blasting of, of information with, with trading, whether that moves the price to a point where it doesn't get there because it because of the market forces. It, it gets there because of an intent to manipulate. 
and that's uh, that's a very tough standard. In the LGD case, the the website was Anthony Pacific. Uh, it was a private subscriber website, and and things were timed in in a way that 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 there was an incredible amount of control uh, by LGD who ran the site, and it, it very different from the situation here with with Wall Street bets where, where people are doing everything out in the open. You know, they're not hiding it. I mean, unless there's some false statements that we don't know about, but at least if, if you take people at their word, you know, hey, let's let's all buy it, you know, because we think it's good or because we think it's going to go up and they can speculate like that. They can they can group trade together as long as, as it's not something that, you know, that 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 deals with something other than the market forces, the natural market forces. And even the Royer decision by the Second Circuit that talks about it in terms of, of market forces and manipulation, I, the argument could be made and, and you know, would be made if, if anybody pursued this, that, that that's a circular way of describing things. You know, it's, it's, it's manipulative if that's what somebody decides later you were trying to do, instead of just trying to get the, the word out, trying to, uh, you know, maybe shake out the shorts you know, for, for future benefits. But the idea of them looking at a stock, GameStop, thinking it, it, it's a good stock, thinking the short interest is super high, 140%, wanting to own it, right? And, and wanting to own it, you know, at, at an appropriate price. And, it, and it, looking at it and saying, because of the shorting, you know, it's not an appropriate price. We, we want to own it. So let's do a short squeeze. Let's shake out the shorts. And then, you know, they're not going to have the appetite to short game stock anymore, and, and you know we, we can own it if we like it, and, and we won't have uh, you know this negative force pushing down the price of of, of what we think is a, a viable business and not as bad as people are saying. I mean, I think that's kind of how a defense of their conduct you know could be framed. And why do they have to even want a reasonable price? Isn't part of the the opportunity that they that was spotted in in theory by some of the people on Wall Street bets was let's punish these people for going so far with their shorts and make a big profit in it. And is there anything wrong with that type of speculation? No. You know, they, they just came to, to this fight with, with a, a new weapon, you know, that, that hadn't been deployed to this point. To shake out the shorts, I mean, they had you know, the zero-sum game. To make money, they've got to take the other side's money. It's just a long and short interest when they collide. It, it's you know, one's loss is the other's gain. One's gain is the other's loss. So nothing wrong with, with, with trying to go in and, and earn some money. And the rhetoric on, on, on the chat was, was about punishing and, you know, shaking them out and those kinds of things. But that's just part of what happens when you decide that you're going to, you're going to, you're going to move a mountain of, of retail investors and, 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 and stand up. I mean, it's not that shorting's bad. I mean, it's not. It's it's uh, you know important to price discovery. You know, for every stock that that trades publicly, if you don't have a somebody pointing out the negatives and and, and betting on that to offset the the, the positives, you're you're, you're not going to get a, a fair price in the markets. I mean, the, the the markets need short sellers. What the Wall Street bets people were saying is that they looked at the shorting of at 140% of, of the float is, as, as being something that was excessive. The hedge funds promote their shorts because they're trying to tank the stock. I mean, they're advertising that they're taking the short position because they want other people to say, yeah, it, it is really bad and 
that helps their their short position. Here you have the opposite happen, but if you think back to maybe herbal life and you have a, a short position that's very well publicized and you have Carl Icahn kind of acting like the way this Reddit group did and, and going on the other side. A quick break for those listening for MCLE credit in California. The code for this interview is 210317. That's 210317. And now back to the interview. Well, let me give you some hypotheticals. I'd love to get your your feedback. How about if I am a member of this Wall Street Vets community and I go out there and I say, bye, 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 diamond hands, diamond hands. And meanwhile, I'm I'm selling uh, on my own account. Is that, is am I running afoul of anything? That's a problem if, if, because you're, you're deceiving members of, of Wall Street bets and, and you're arguably trying to, to, to have them to stay long so, so that you, you can liquidate your position. And for a lot of these retail investors, that may come as a surprise because they're used to this pretty robust First Amendment right to say whatever you want, to even lie if you want. But when it comes to the SEC, there's there's some restrictions on speech. Well, right. Well, that's that's when you would probably focus, you know, not only on, on whether the statement is false or or misleading omission, you'd look to see whether it's actually material, whether it's somebody who's a strong member, you know, who has a following, maybe somebody who's got a bigger presence on social media, you know, somebody like that. I think that's what a regulator or a prosecutor would, would look at. Right. I mean, I think somebody who's sharing their brokerage statement and showing that they made millions of dollars and that you should listen to their advice, mm-hmm. maybe their voice matters more. Saying that you're you're intending to buy and then while you're selling is looking at it like a classic pump and dump analysis. Just because they're a layperson doesn't mean they're, the SEC is not going to look at it through that lens. How about if we go one step more meta? I mean, if you looked at some of these channels, they weren't giving very detailed descriptions of what users should do, but they were certainly setting the tone, sending around the emoji diamond and then the emoji for hands or the emoji for rocket ship, which, you know, under the the parlance meant the stock's going up to the moon. Would those be understood as meaning more than just a couple of emojis? Well, I think you'd have to consider it in, in the, the broader context. It's very fact specific, right? So if you got somebody who has a following who, you know, t- tends to rally the troops and it's, it's somebody who is influential and, and knows that they are, you know, that, that could be looked at as being front-running and, and, you know, front-running securities fraud as well. It's in the sense of, of you know, you're front-running if you tell somebody that you're doing one thing, you're doing something else and, and telling somebody to stay long, to hold, you know, that you think that they're actually going to do that and listen to you and you're taking advantage of that. So if I was one of the individuals who had made, you know, a killing on the on the run up and then I'm, I'm tweeting uh, or I'm posting diamond hands, diamond hands and selling in a big way, I might be a little nervous now that uh, I'm, I may face some scrutiny. Well, sure. I mean, I think, you know, you're right about that. If, you, if somebody makes a lot of money, they're, they're more likely to come under scrutiny, right? And, and if that's what they're doing and, and the SEC or, or DOJ can prove that timeline, you know, which, which isn't too hard to put together. Yeah, that could, be, that could be a problem. You mentioned that there's deceit in statements and then there's just general deceit. 
I'm wondering uh, what what would cross the line here if I set up my my Reddit profile as you know Joel the farmer, and it turns out I'm actually a, a very sophisticated Wall Street trader. Have I have I crossed the line there? Well, that that would be uh, movement towards the line. I, I, there'd have to also be, I, I think, some kind of uh, statements, you know, to, to cause people to hold, you know, wh while you were selling. And I think that that's, you know, would potentially cross the line. But then you have to prove that it's material too. It'd have to be somebody that, you know, that has a following that that somebody listens to, and you know, that 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 somebody, uh, you know, listened to at their own financial peril. I mean, we know that there are investigations about it. We know that one of the leaders of this at Wall Street Bets group and one of the leaders of the charge to buy GameStop stock is an employee of a broker dealer uh, and who's being uh, was part of the congressional hearings that just took place and certainly I think received a subpoena from the Massachusetts Attorney General's office, uh, which is not surprising. Uh, and then you also have FINRA issues for his employer. You know, there's there are certain rules about uh, that communications by employees with the public have to be supervised, that outside business dealings need to be disclosed. And I think it's a question and also monitored by the employer. And I think that there are questions about probably how it was supervised, what the employer's rules were, what kind of compliance procedures were in place. And I think that's something that a lot of broker dealers are going to have to look at and think about with with this new environment that we're in. I think this has been a fascinating case and and one you know as Farah as you mentioned a real uh, confluence of being stuck at home and maybe some people looking for a great win on, after a terrible year uh, but you know even my, my personal circle the interest and excitement around GameStop seems unprecedented um, and you know I wonder whether it will translate into some some legal uh, enforcement actions as well well, I think it's inevitable. The uh, something that gets as much attention as this, with, with so many winners and losers, and and uh, the, the social media profile, the congressional hearings, I, I think that there's the public's going to demand that that there be something done about it. So, you know, whatever form that takes will depend on the facts and circumstances. But I, I've certainly we know that it has significant uh, regulatory and, and 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 criminal enforcement interest already. Well, I really appreciate the two of you uh, zooming in to join and and explain some of the some of the liability and criminal aspects of this GameStop saga. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.